Welcome to episode 133 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today uh, by our uh, guest uh, for the interview. I just actually finished that, and we'll tack it on to the end with the Gruck. Uh, uh, fascinating, completely non-U.S. Uh, view of cyber war and cybersecurity, uh, and for the news roundup. Um, I'm joined by Alan Cohn, formerly head of strategy for DHS, the second in charge of DHS policy, and now of counsel to Stepto. Welcome, Alan. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, and Katie Castle, uh, who's uh, an attorney in our International Regulatory Compliance Group. Hi, Katie. Hi, Stuart. Uh, and by Maury Shank, back from Honeymoon. Uh, uh, that's your principal uh, credential this time, Maury. Uh, uh, but he, he's also a former managing partner in our London office and an advisor to us on uh, technology and cybersecurity issues. And, 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 and uh, how was uh, Jordan? Jordan is an amazing country. There's, you know, some instability in the Middle East, but Jordan has remained um, quite stable um, and super welcoming to tourists, particularly because there aren't as many around. And um, just a, a huge variety of stuff between uh, ancient archaeological sites like Petra and the desert and lots of other great stuff. So I recommend it to uh the people as a tourist destination. Well, that's great. Uh, Even if you're not on honeymoon. Yeah, they're 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 uh, famous for being extremely tight with the CIA, and not necessarily with any other part of the U.S. government. Uh, so uh, uh, that's a tribute to uh, the CIA's. Uh, um, uh, managerial uh, expertise uh, that uh, uh, you had such a good time. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and never uh, with CIA and the record holder for returning to step out of practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in. Uh, lots of cybersecurity news, including uh, diplomacy. Uh, uh, the DNI and DHS have finally fingered Russia for doing the DNC and DCC hacks. Uh, I feel like they're, they're still like six hacks back in uh, 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 fingering uh, people who are taking responsibility, mostly the Russians, uh, uh, for um, stealing and releasing uh, uh, a bunch of emails. Uh, uh, Alan, um, I, I thought it was interesting that this was DHS and not FBI. Uh, uh, Presumably that's because we're not indicting anybody. Well, I think that for one. And number two, because the actual uh, attribution was paired with a notice to the states about uh, the election. Uh, where they did not the quite finger the Russians. Right. So, uh, yes, so the, it starts with kind of a paragraph of the U.S. intelligence community is confident that the Russian government directed the recent compromise is consistent with methods and motivations of Russian-directed efforts intended to interfere with the U.S. election process, not new to Moscow, and that given all of that, only Russia's most senior officials could have authorized those activities. But then the alert that's goes on. That's real interesting. Yes, uh, I mean, that that's language is... Uh, uh, naming uh, Putin. Yes. Uh, I mean, it is a... It almost goes beyond the other attributions that we've seen yeah. for China, for North Korea, for Iran, and saying... Yes, this is the leadership. So I suppose I, I guess one possibility is they're setting the stage for doxing Putin. 
Well, it's interesting, yes. it's The question is, do you go the sanctions route, which this sets up both from an yes. individual and from a country perspective, or do you go the retribution route from an offensive cybersecurity perspective? Um, both of which would be kind of new ground. And, uh, and especially with Russia, it's... It's unclear. It does seem like the Russians are kind of goading uh, us to uh, to take a step, and and uh, and it's unclear where that pat- pattern of or that that back and forth of escalation might be contained. Well, it ain't back and forth. It's just forth <laughs> it's just and forth, forth right now. Forth <laughs> and forth. I, uh, I'm reminded of the um, Groucho Marx line, which we could update as. Uh, these are my red lines. If you cross them, I have others. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, it's like uh, uh, Putin thinks that the president has checked out on this stuff and is never going to do anything. Uh, uh, we'll see. Uh, it, um, uh, I, I'm half inclined to agree with him. Um, so Yahoo's in big trouble. Uh, they've they've had um, their principal bidder uh, uh, Verizon knock a billion dollars off the value of the their bid based on two stories that be- that individually you would have said most people most companies could withstand there was a big breach uh, and it's old uh, and uh, uh, Yahoo was uh, slow to disclose it, maybe too slow, maybe not. Uh, I, and uh, uh, that continues to roil uh, um, the situation. But, you know, frankly, uh, the likelihood that they're going to pay big damages doesn't strike me as, as uh, extraordinary. Well, it, it did seem like this got caught up into the the Silicon Valley mystery of why did Alex Stamos leave Yahoo? Yes, and that and now, we, to now, be, now yeah. we know it's this other thing, which is that, um, and, and I have to say, this may be, I mean, it's, there's a lot of competition for this, but this might be the dumbest privacy scandal of the year. Um, Everybody who uses Yahoo Mail knows that their mail is scanned. It's scanned for spam. It's scanned for uh, uh, child porn. Uh, uh, it's scanned to improve ads. Uh, so you know the company is looking at every single piece of mail that comes into Yahoo. They've been sued over it, uh, and they just moved the scanning to a different stage in the uh, uh, in the email process. Uh, and yet. When the government goes to them and says we have a terrorist suspect and there's a unique aspect to his emails and we want you to find – we don't have the names, but we know something unique about the emails. Uh, we want you to find them. We can't find them anymore uh, because you've encrypted all of the incoming and outgoing uh, mail. Uh, and Yahoo says, yeah, sure, we can find that. We'll go through our email and, and find it and provide it to you. You know, we'll scan our email. That's not a scandal, surely. Looking for one particular signature is hard to see that as a scandal either. Well, it echoes the same considerations that came up in the Apple versus FBI case, which is here you are, you know. Yeah, they are doing the, something the for their asking, government. The government asking the company to design something specific 
you know, for the purposes of the res- of the, the request they've been they've been given. And you see, you saw the kind of most violent reactions of uh, of Google and Microsoft and, and Apple kind of coming out and saying, yeah, we've like, never gotten know, this and we don't do it. Frankly, I'll believe that, or I'll 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 be impressed by that when they say, and we've just discovered. We're scanning for child porn, and we're going to stop, by God, because we don't help the government do their job. If they want to scan for child porn, well, they should go looking out uh, on the Internet for it. Uh, it's it's bizarre that, that people would say, oh, child porn, yeah, yeah, sure, we understand that you, you scan for that. But scanning for terrorists, oh, that's a shocking abuse of uh, our, our privacy. It's nuts. And it may be that, you know, if you have knowledge, if one has knowledge of what that indicator or indicators were, it becomes less of an issue. But um, for child pornography or for other types of things, that the kinds of things that you're looking for in an, in an email are pretty self-contained and that people have some have a pretty good sense of either they're doing that or they're not doing that. They're in the they're in that category. They're not the 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 combination of the of the kind of the tool disclosure combined with the non disclosure of what it was that was being looked for makes it look almost more just yeah. indiscriminate. Why don't we tell the terrorists what their unique signature is so that they'll know that, that we're only looking for them and uh, as long as they're using this signature uh, we'll find them. I, that's crazy too. I, the, the idea that this should be uh, subject to a plebiscite uh, is is crazy. Uh, um, it, the Ron Wyden, in his usual obnoxious way, is has found something else to complain about. He, he's saying this is a new, a novel interpretation of the law, uh, and uh, uh, because it's a novel interpretation of the law, the provisions that we added uh, to, to Section 215 require publication of the document uh, of, of the opinion. I'm not sure it is a a uh, particularly novel interpretation. It's, it's uh, you know, we have something that's probable cause. Uh, this this is what we have uh, uh, that identifies it, uh, and uh, we want you to look for it. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's asking for uh, assistance, but I don't see anything uh, uh, novel about that either. Okay? All right. Um, so, Third Circuit. Um, I, this I, I'm I'm. I'm full of rants today, so Katie, hold me down on this one. Uh, uh, the Third Circuit has joined a hall of shame that up to now had only included the European Court of Justice, which is people who who know that the Guardian articles about PRISM were, if not lies, certainly wrong, um, and who persist in relying on them to give them legal effect nonetheless. Uh, um, uh, Third Circuit was asked whether uh, whether to uphold a decision dismissing a case against PRISM brought by a guy who has no reason to believe that he's a target, uh, claiming, well, they're reading all the emails and I've got emails. Um, and uh, the Third Circuit, if I read this right, basically said, well, you have to have some basis for your complaint. You can't just make this stuff up. Uh, and here's a Guardian article that seems to say that they're reading everybody's mail, so I guess you didn't make it up. Is that is that, is that am I am I reading this right? I think so, but it's it's a little bit more limited than that. They they only considered um, 
a facial challenge to the complaint, which is they can look at the four corners of the complaint and nothing else to see if he has he has pled sufficient facts. And right. he this found is motion to dismiss land, so it, you're supposed right. to give the complaint a lot of leeway. Right, and it's actually it's actually almost even less than that because it's because it's just the facial complaint, and he alleged specific facts like the company names and the dates that that communications were accessed. Um, they did kind of stress at the end that the ruling was limited. They didn't find he actually had standing, mm-hmm. and the government could sh- still challenge the factual allegations in the complaint. And it kind of, it seemed, um, it seemed like they were pretty skeptical of the, that the plaintiffs actually had standing because they point that to kind of what the government has put forth as undermining um, the plaintiff's factual allegations and also pointed to, you know, government's privileges to prevent discovery and things like that, that um, it wouldn't be surprising if it went back to the district court. And and, and, and get, get dumped now or maybe on summary judgment or so, something of the sort. But there there will be discovery between uh, a motion to dismiss, dismiss and uh, <laughs> summary judgment, or as there's likely to be. This this just prolongs the, the litigation substantially in a case where everybody knows that that Guardian article was wrong, uh, and, and the judges did too. So they're putting a very formalistic... Um, uh, opinion out that is going to just mean months, if not years, of additional uh, litigation down below. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, great. The world is uh, is in great shape. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, welcome back. And um, I have been hearing bits and pieces about this talk talk data protection case uh, which seems to have had an enormous impact on public opinion in uh, uh, the UK Um, it it was a big breach and now they're going to pay a big fine Uh, can you give us a little bit of background yeah I mean talk talk is a moderately priced uh, ISP over here a lot cheaper than BT they took over Tiscali's business among other things, which was the the problem here, um, and I think you know they're the average um, average Joe or, or average Ian maybe in the UK um, is affected by this. Uh, although it was done by a bunch of teenagers, and it doesn't appear that there was major abuse of the information that was stolen, um, but um, it affected a lot of people, and the fine was. Four hundred thousand pounds from the information commissioner, mm-hmm. with a potential twenty percent discount for quick payment. Um, Five hundred thousand pounds is the maximum possible fine here, and it's the so this was the biggest fine that had ever been issued. Yeah, interestingly, when the general data protection regulation comes in to force um, in um, in two thousand eighteen, fines will be up to four percent of turnover, which here would have been could have been seventy million pounds or more, uh, but. Still, it's a big fine, and people care about it. And the reasoning was, was this was based upon a SQL injection attack um, that was similar to ones TalkTalk had experienced before, and they seemed to ignore the problem. And, you know, you need um, to impose that kind of fine, either intentional misbehavior or sort of willful ignorance of a known problem. And the fine was imposed on the later basis here. Okay, so that's really what's going on here. It's not so much that uh, something really bad happened with the data, but that the, these guys are serial violators or uh, uh, ignorers of uh, uh, good cybersecurity hygiene. Yeah, it, it was just they missed some really basic stuff. Uh, and, 
you could say this is about cybersecurity standards, but any reasonable ISP um, has to meet standards at this level, and they deserve what they got, and they're lucky, I believe, that the fine... Uh, that, that there wasn't the ability to impose bigger fines. This was a, a tiny fine for them, actually, because reportedly they spent about 60 million pounds on investigation and remediation. So 400,000 was uh, tiny. Oh, it's it's just it's symbolic, yeah. Okay. Um, well, privacy in telcos is getting a workout, uh, or at least a lot of attention here, too. The FCC uh, has revised its privacy regs, uh, but they're still much tougher than the FTC's general standards for, for privacy in that they, they still call for a lot of uh, opt-in rather than opt-out privacy standards. Is that right? That's right. So the so the original proposal, which the um, FTC criticized greatly, kind of um, tied opt in, opt out to how it was going to be, how the data was going to be used, whether it was going to be used for marketing and what kind of marketing. Um, and so they've revised it, um, and now it's tied to whether the data is sensitive or not. So to use or share sensitive information, they have to get an affirmative opt in, um, except for you know basic purposes like the provision of the service. Um, and it seems like the sensitive information is, you know, pretty wide. It includes, like, app usage and web browsing history and, and things like that. So pretty much, basically, they're going to have to get uh, opt-in permission to do anything interesting uh, with the data, is my guess. Yeah, that's what it seems. And it, and it seems like the security standards as well in the original rule were kind of laid out. Um, and it's not clear whether they're making those less specific now, but um, they still seem to be to be pretty robust. So. And, and Edith Ramirez continues this this bizarre and kind of embarrassing practice of putting out press releases saying, man, yeah, you know, made you, made you change it, didn't <laughs> I? Uh, you know, we're still the, the champs here in privacy regulation. I, I don't get it, why they think it's good for them to, to be stressing how much of an impact they're having and how they set the standards and the FCC dances to their tune. Uh, there's something, you know, kind of sick in that relationship. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it seems that, that way to me, too. It's, um, it seems like they are just having a, a turf war over the broadband providers, and they don't they think that their approach is best and that if there are going to be different approaches, it's going to cause issues. So. All right. Um, and um, uh, speaking of um, the sort of sick bureaucratic uh, responses to uh, uh, the world, uh, I, Alan, I saw that uh, Health and Human Services has imposed another big fine on somebody, and this time it's – is it really just for not having updated their contracts with uh, their suppliers? It's kind of even weirder than that. Um, so you have this. This case involves Care New England Health Systems, which is kind of an umbrella hold, yeah. holding uh, healthcare entity, and one of its institutions, a Women's and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island. Um, and they have a business associates agreement that covers things like information handling, um, because of course Care New England Health Systems will aggregate information, and other things like that. Um, so. And HHS, yes, did conclude that the agreement between uh, the hospital and the and the health system hadn't been updated since March 2005, and then therefore didn't incorporate the revisions required by the High Tech Act of 2009 and the implementing regulations. 
So a couple of things about this. Number one, again, this started with another self-reporting of yeah. a loss of unencrypted backup. They're, they're, right? they're going to learn that lesson. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so this was the Women's and Infants Hospital self-reporting a loss of unencrypted backup tapes. There was an investigation. HHS levied this fine because what they said was that the failure to update the, the agreement meant that the hospital shared the protected health information of at least 14,000 people with Care New England Health Systems without satisfactory assurances that Care New England would appropriately safeguard yeah, it's a paperwork information. problem. I mean, um, maybe it's worse than that, but it sounds like a paperwork problem. You didn't update it. And the underlying loss of information had already been settled with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office for $150,000 fine and a consent order. So this didn't even have to do with the precipitating loss, number one, and number two, it resulted in a higher fine. You kind of uh, imagine for the showing up and saying, "What? You've taken care of it? Uh, well, we'll find something else to find you for." Uh, it's sad. Uh, okay, uh, HHS, uh, um, you are lucky the Yahoo uh, flap occurred; otherwise, you'd be at risk of the dumbest uh, uh, privacy uh, story of the year. Um, and. Let's move now, if we can, to our interview with the Gruck. Our guest today is the Gruck, who is well-known in uh, cybersecurity and hacking circles uh, and uh, a major presence on Twitter and an occasional presence on uh, uh, security and increasingly cyber warfare uh, uh, lists. Uh, uh, He brings a remarkably... Uh, different approach to these issues. He's South African. He lives in Southeast Asia. Um, he has a long background as a security researcher and got interested in cyber warfare, as I gather, uh, um, uh, selling, uh, realizing that you could sell exploits to uh, uh, countries that were interested in cyber espionage and cyber warfare <clears throat> during what I'm now thinking of as the the great exploit bubble uh, uh, of a few years ago. Uh, um, and, and so he brings to cyber issues a perspective that is utterly untainted either by U.S. legal thinking or really by U.S. national security experience. Uh, so welcome to the Gruck. Hi, <laughs> uh, welcome. Um, okay, very, very briefly, I retired from selling quite a while ago. So that was like 2012. Well, you got out at, before the bubble burst, um, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, I guess the thing is I, I have experience in cyber from both um, you know, historically, I've had uh, quite a lot of contact with uh, the, the agencies. Um, I do keep in contact with a number of people who are uh, actively involved in, you know, uh, what they call CNO, like computer network operation stuff. So I, I, I have both the 20 years of experience of hacking uh, with the public sector. So with the, uh, I have 20 years of hacking with the private sector and um, experience in speaking, at least, with the public sector. But I'm, I'm no legal scholar, for sure. 
<laughs> so I, uh, let me let me ask a couple of questions about recent developments. Uh, uh, you've written about the um, NSA toolkit or the equation group toolkit uh, that was uh, uh, leaked uh, mm-hmm. online um, a, and uh, suggesting that you thought it was pulled off of a uh, redirector link, uh, probably the result of somebody making the mistake of uploading an entire toolkit uh, onto a node that was being monitored by uh, uh, another security service. Uh, um, and at the same time, there's been an arrest uh, of Harold Martin, uh, uh, an NSA employee accused of mishandling classified information, including malware. Uh, um, it, do you think that there's any possibility that uh, he's the source of some of these leaks? Um, okay, so I, I, I stand by my analysis that uh, it was pulled off, like this kit, at least the firewall operations toolkit, was pulled off a redirect. It was pulled off a pivot box at some point. Um, I based part of that analysis on the belief uh, from, you know, what I've been told, that basically people don't walk in and out of Fort Meade with USB sticks in their pockets. And the arrest of this guy who has literally been walking in and out of Fort Meade with USB sticks in his pocket is an absolute shock to me. Um, that said, I I think given that uh, they've charged him with mishandling classified information and uh, stealing government property, you know, which only goes for a year or something, like, I, I guess they charged him with stealing paper clips. I don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe he was bringing home office pens. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I, I'm, I, I, I'm guessing he was bringing home code and uh, documents. But, you know, I, I have to say, when I was general counsel at NSA, yeah. we, we had the same problem. People wanted to do work at home because they wanted to get their job done and they couldn't do it in the office. And they took they took classified stuff home. And some of the saddest cases that we uh, prosecuted uh, were of people who just wanted to do their job and uh, were too enthusiastic about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I can I can certainly believe that. Um, you know, as I said, given given the fact that they have not charged him with espionage of any sort, and you know, giving the the equation group toolkit to someone is espionage by any like any way you look at it. That's that's the the, the full espionage charge. There's no like mishandling classified info accidentally gave it to a foreign intelligence service. Oops. Right. So uh, I, I think he's, he's more along the lines of some dude who is just bringing stuff home. Uh, from what I've heard, he was in Tau. He was not in the group that should have had access to that toolkit. But, you know, obviously once you're in Tau, that's it. You, you could theoretically get access to it. Uh, I don't think he's the source. Um, there's an there's an earlier article by Joseph Men, uh, sourced from a bunch of FBI investigations, which had found that there was a contractor who um, did actually upload the kit to a redirector, and that that contractor no longer works at NSA. Um, 
apparently there were a number of people who were doing uh, bad things there. It was they had sloppy tradecraft, basically. And so I, I, I think, I, I honestly think I will be vindicated on that one. But uh, the, the people walking out with USB sticks, I think, is a huge security nightmare and quite scary. Yeah, it is. Like that, that is. But you know, uh, there's a lot of people who walk in and out, and it's very hard. To, uh, it's it probably is easier to police whether people put um, uh, USB sticks into computers on the network than to police whether they walk in and out with uh, USB sticks on their uh, keychains. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, they, they they even have USB sticks that that go on cufflinks. Yes. So. Uh, finding, finding a way to get something in and out is probably not the hard part. Um, and, you know, obviously some, some level of this has to be the honor system. Like you, you can't force everyone to strip naked and do a, a full body cavity search every day in and out, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe for a week and then they quit. So clearly there's some, some honor system that has to go on there and, I think, generally speaking, most people who, who work at NSA are pretty patriotic and are not going to be doing that. But, wow. Uh, it's it, uh, certainly a counterintelligence nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, so it, 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 it now appears that just about everybody who's in this business uh, um, uh, among the nation states has gotten caught rather embarrassingly to some degree. Uh, and, um, uh, and one of the questions might be, um, uh, what was the purpose of this leak? Uh, it uh, clearly was not to auction off uh, uh, tools. Uh, Edward Snowden said it's the it's the Russians sending the United States a message that if they retaliate for the DNC hack, there is more pain to come. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to believe him on this one. Uh, I I think that if you if you take the word of someone who spent three years under FSB protection, um, I'm you know. Like at this at this point, if he's saying uh, FSB is probably sending a message saying this, I would take him at face value. Uh, I, I think that he probably has a fairly good line on that sort of information. If there's one thing we can um, trust, if there's one thing we can trust him for, it's uh, <laughs> to know what FSB, what message FSB is sending. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think I think that if if you're looking for a channel into uh, what FSB wants people to know, um, you know, he, he's certainly an excellent source for that at this point. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't disbelieve him. Uh, you know, as also as Dave Itell said, um, you know, this is not the sort of thing like you don't take on the equation group if you're. Two thirteen-year-olds and their older brother. You know, like you, you don't, you don't. Well, first of all, you don't have access. You don't have the skills to be able to do it. But assuming you did, you would not. Um, you would not take this sort of approach to uh, either monetizing the kit. You know, as I said. You, you could you could basically take uh, any of the exploits that were found. You could walk into you could walk into any embassy 
in Europe and walk out with, you know, as much money as you want, within some reason. Or you could give them to ZDI or any of the bug bounty programs would happily pay you thousands of dollars for them. I mean, not, not many thousands, but certainly much more than they've collected so far. So, you know, obviously the option is a red herring. It's not there. This is a message of some sort, and it's a message that has to be backed up by a nation state because, you know, uh, kids don't send messages like this. Uh, if, if it was a hacktivist sending a message, the message would be linked to the course that they're advocating for. Right. Yep. So um, I don't know if there's some, you know, make Puerto Rico the 51st state or make Puerto Rico a free state, for example, or, or something like that. It, it would be, you know, here's the, here's the kids, either a seat to the set of demands or kit number two comes out, something along those lines. So I'm not actually, I'm not actually sure the timelines correspond quite well with um, the retaliation for the DNC hack. Uh, I, I would have to put it together a bit more. Some of the some of the accounts that they set up were set up quite early. Um, I think it's possible they predate the Washington Post article. Um, for example, the, the Gustafa 2 only existed after Washington Post uh, revealed the DNC hack. Whereas um, there's, there's signs that some of these accounts were several weeks old, so I think I'd have to put them in a, a timeline and see. I, I think that there's some there's some message being sent for sure, and it's nation state act, and it is very likely DNC hack related. So, but, uh, it's, you know, hard, hard to it's not clear whether the U.S. is getting the message because, of course, the DNI um, over the weekend uh, um, did uh, finger uh, Russia as the uh, uh, source of the DNC DCC hack. Uh, they did not uh, finger uh, uh, Russia quite yet for some of the intrusions into election systems. Um, but it's a, a pretty clear that uh, the U.S., well, having having done that, I think almost certainly has to do something about it. Uh, uh, and so um, we're, we're stepping onto an escalator, it, it looks like to me. Yeah, it's... Uh I think I think one of the, the interesting things here is that the in, in some ways the uh, the U.S. has very much bought in, bought into its own belief that cyber is about the ability to deploy the best tool chain and the ability to get anywhere and get anything from anyone. Um, they, they, they bought into the, the, the sort of like cyber Pearl Harbor and, you know, cyber switching off the lights and all this stuff. And they've, they've focused, uh, very, very myopically on the technology aspects of, um, what is actually an information sphere that people interact with, right? I mean, the, like you could you could look at for example Stuxnet you could take a couple of different lessons on the one hand you could take the lesson which uh, apparently the Americans took which was uh, you can get into anything and do what you want or you could take the other lesson which is you cannot trust anything that your computer systems tell you 
right? Because uh, Stuxnet, for example, was still reporting that the centrifuges were working correctly when they were not, right? So uh, if you look at it from an information point of view, uh, the lesson was um, you cannot trust reality and the systems that tell you about reality. Whereas if you look at it from an espionage point of view, it's like, uh, oh, wow, we're all powerful. And I think that the um, the understanding that the Americans have about cyber as a domain, the sort of like the fifth domain of conflict, is is very limited in terms of uh, focusing on technology and espionage and how it can help them with their policy and things like that. And they've they've sort of failed a bit at understanding this deeper level of uh, how people. Uh, interact with information. So um, let me let me let me try restating that. One, one. Let me let me restate that and see mm. if I understand it. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, it, it's easy, or at least if you're a U.S. policymaker, to ex- say cyber extends our our cyber espionage our espionage capabilities. It extends our ability to project force. And what you're saying is, yeah, but what you've missed is the way in which um, uh, these tools can be used to shape people's experience of the world uh, uh, online uh, to shape their view of reality. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, I think that's, that, that would be one, uh, that would certainly be a fair way of restating it. So, um, for example, one of the things I've said is uh, th- there are certain things which are, say, uh, denied area uh, topics, for example. So if you go on Twitter and you say something about the Second Amendment, you won't get the second word in before you'll be jumped. Right? So if you if you go and you say, the Americans probably shouldn't hand guns out to everyone, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, you will not do that again. Right? And it, it doesn't take any sort of cyber technology. There's no exploits involved. There's no tool chain, uh, I, I doubt that there's an organized force of people who are there monitoring and waiting to deliberately deny that that realm of conversation. It's simply, it's something that you cannot discuss because it is, it saps your energy so much. It's, it's a denied thing. There's, there's other hot topics as well. Um, you well, know, and, we, and, we're and all certain, probably experiencing... It, certainly the... the, the yeah, the, like we're, I mean, like we're... Let me let me ask about that uh, uh, because both the Russians and the Chinese have have armies of people, if not machines, that will um, degrade the, the the level of discourse on topics that they don't want discussed uh, pretty fast. In the same way that uh, um, controversial political topics in the U.S. tend to get degraded. Yes, exactly. So I I think that. What that demonstrates is that uh, the, the Russians and the Chinese have seen the uh, the information side of this, and they've attempted to, uh, if you'll excuse the term, they've attempted to weaponize it. Right? So they've attempted to take the ability to make a topic sort of denied, and they've attempted to uh, create a way of denying a topic. And they don't do that by, you know, sending SIM packets to flood someone offline. They don't do it by sending reset packets to, to it by 
sapping the will and energy of everyone involved to stay involved. And I think that that, like they've done it crudely, I don't think they've necessarily done it very well, but I think they've understood it. And I, I think that that is an advantage that they have um, that the Americans don't, because the Americans have this approach to freedom of speech and free society and so on, and have sort of failed to understand controlling information as, uh, as its own thing. Well, you, yes and no, I, because I think the the U.S. has started to struggle with it in the context of radical Islamic messaging, uh, where not very effectively uh, the, the U.S. has tried to counter uh, uh, the messages that are coming out of ISIS uh, and, and elsewhere. Uh, what they haven't tried is to just... just Toxify the uh, uh, the messages uh, so that uh, nobody can tweet twice about uh, uh, their enthusiasm enthusiasm for ISIS without being buried in um, abuse and uh, uh, trolling messages of one sort or another, which is what the Russians would do, or and probably the Chinese. Uh, absolutely. So I mean, if if so, if I was in charge of that program, the uh, what was it? Uh, think again. Turn away. Yeah. I, I don't know what the, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. They should have turned away. But um, that that program is very very clearly not going to work. What would have, what I believe would have worked better, and, and has been suggested by some other people as well, would have been to create uh, not necessarily a patriotic army. But uh, something along the lines of if you post about Twitter, there will be a thousand people who will, sorry, if you, if you post on Twitter about ISIS, there will be a thousand people who engage you in conversations that you just don't want to go down. Just rabbit holes, soul-sucking, boring. <laughs> Eventually you're like, you know what, never mind. I just, <laughs> I don't care anymore. This is boring. All of you, shut up! I'm going away. You know, and I, that I think would have been much more effective than this attempt at sort of countering the narrative, which they failed to do so spectacularly. So, yeah, like my my advice, flat out, would have been just, you know, create a group of people who sit there and monitor this stuff and argue incessantly. So let me ask a, let me ask a different question because you know of course all these conversations are happening on um, platforms or many of them are happening on platforms that were created by big U.S. companies and are run out of Silicon Valley yeah. um, and that raises the question for me is what is the role of uh, large companies you you said to me offline that. Uh, um, there are only three or four computers left in the world, and Microsoft has one, and Google has one, and Apple has one, and China has one, and you know maybe the Russians have one. Uh, I, and uh, uh, with all the computers in the hands of U.S. companies uh, doing battle with various nation states who want them to use those computers in particular ways, um, the relationship between foreign governments and U.S. companies has never been more complicated. Yeah, certainly. I, I think the um, like the way that the Internet basically erased boundaries has been massively legally complicated in a way that the legal system 
is simply not designed to operate. Like the, the, the legal system is slow and plodding and it figures things out over time. And the internet is the opposite of that. Right? Like it, it's fast and it's changing. And um, what's happened is you've got all of these American companies who, you know, they, they have all of these computing resources. They actually own computers. They're... I mean, quite frankly, I'd much rather be using a American computer and an American company for email than, say, a Russian one, right? Like, I, I trust the laws of the U.S., even though I have no rights under them. I, I, I trust them more than I do, you know, an autocratic government. But at the same time, um, it's somewhat curious. Like, uh, Europe, for example, placed a huge amount of trust and faith in um, in these American companies, and I think they're sort of regretting it now, but they don't have a way to counter it. They don't they don't have a way to go back and say, actually, can we build our own computer instead? So, like, there's there's, there's a lot that could go on there. Um, I personally. Like personally, I think that uh, Europe should bite the bullet. They should go hard on data privacy to make U.S. companies non-competitive, uh, and then they should invest heavily and build their own computers. So regulate, regulate their, to, regulate their way. You, the idea is they should regulate their way to competitiveness. Uh, not, you know, it hasn't worked well, uh, but uh, they may not have a lot of other options. Uh, uh, but I'm not even sure who the plausible competitor from uh, uh, the uh, uh, the European side of the pond is, especially after Brexit. I just don't see anybody. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think that they they have no way of getting their act together in time. Um, also, they are, you know, they're starting very, very far behind on this. Uh, they have huge strategic disadvantages. Um, and in some ways, uh, I think that the, for example, um, you know, NSA provides uh, figuring capabilities that the Europeans themselves don't have. Like they're they're able to trade, uh, and uh, so the U.S. is able to trade NSA signals for um, you know French human, for example. Yep. Um, and I think that that sort of thing means that uh, you know all of the all of the services certainly benefit from that sort of arrangement. Uh, the French don't have to try and build their own computer. Um, the Americans can spend all their money on technology rather than, you know, uh, sending people to Iraq to die of dysentery and whatever. And so it's, it's you know, everyone kind of wins from that. And I, I don't think the services care so much. And so it's civil society. And I, I think civil society is in Europe too fractured to legislate their way to anything, let alone, you know, competitiveness in the technology sphere. So let me let me let me let me ask you a question because we ought to ought to wrap mm-hmm. up. Uh, uh, but let me ask you a big picture question. Uh, you've seen a lot of evolution in the last ten years, and you're pretty close to what's happening in in various governments. Uh, um, look forward ten years from now. 
What do what does the cyber environment look like? What are nation states doing? Uh, what are companies doing? Uh, uh, what are users doing? Uh, uh, where are we going to be in ten years? Um, so I I don't like to admit it, but I think uh, Dave Itell is quite correct that basically there's going to be something along the lines of uh, the NSA cloud. Uh, the Chinese cloud and, you know, say the Russian cloud or whatever. Like basically, uh, the, the cost and expense of securing your own infrastructure is going to be too much. So you're going to have to outsource it to someone. And that means you basically have to pick a side. Um, and the Chinese and Americans are actually much closer in agreements, I think, than they appear right now. So I, I think there's going to be a lot more cooperation there uh, in the future. Like at some point, the Chinese are going to realize they've moved far enough up the value chain that it's in their own best interests to sort of uh, establish good cyber norms, good cyber security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the Europeans are going to get screwed and they're going to have to use the American cloud. Uh, just because they can't build their own in time. Well, and the Africans the, are going to have to use um, the Africans. The aren't the Africans going to have to use the Chinese cloud? Uh, most likely, the, like the Chinese stuff is probably. It's not that bad, really. It's uh, cheap. It works well. Uh, some of the cybersecurity practices are very good. Uh, a lot of them aren't. Uh, Africa is basically owned by China at this point. They're going to use the Chinese cloud. China's probably going to be relatively aligned with America. Uh, Europe's not going to have a choice. It, it's uh, like right now, um, for example, you could look at it as uh, should you host your own email server? And the answer is do you have a 50-person security team? Yeah. If you do have a 50-person security team, go for it. Uh, and if you do not, then use Google, because Google does have a large number of people who will protect your email. It exposes you to some risks in terms of, uh, you know, your, your data is exposed to the U.S., but as long as you're not a beard, that's probably not a huge issue for you. Um, like, I, I hate to say it, I know that the privacy crowd loves to think that they are the personal target and attention of the NSA, but NSA spends almost all of their time on terrorists, which is stupid, I think, given that terrorism isn't a particularly big threat. But anyway, the NSA just doesn't really have that much manpower to go after these random individuals who fucking... PGP each other all the time <laughs> because they're they're scared of stuff, you know. Yeah. So it's, so it's what is not their job? Let, let me then let me let me close with saying I I I appreciate and I I see the uh, the appeal and maybe the uh, the force of an idea that says you're going to have to get under an umbrella 
uh, and you, there, there are only uh, two or three umbrellas that you're going to be able to get under, right? Uh, and, uh, um, and, and, and because monitoring the network for unusual events and to make sure people aren't moving data around improperly means everybody's got to be monitored, uh, where does that leave users who think of the Internet as a, uh, a force for freedom? Are they, are they just naive? Um, it's dystopian in some ways, certainly. Um, I, I, I wish that there was a, another way, but it seems that uh, basically pursuing the profit motive has meant that the development of uh, secure tools and secure infrastructure is not a priority, right? Um, as Hollow Fate likes to say, the uh, like the choice to have secure or not secure software is a management decision, right? Like they could choose to invest in making secure software, and they choose not to. So people have chosen not to for so long that the capital investments of a team to secure things is required. That means that you know, you're going to need, you know, as, as you said, you're going to need to get under an umbrella. You need a roof, and there's only going to be a few people, uh, a few possible places that have made that investment and have that roof. And it kind of sucks, you yeah. know. I, I, I very much do wish that we were at that sort of late 90s stage of uh, the Internet was new and fresh and exciting, um, everyone could run whatever they wanted. You know, there, there was the idea that this was a new world, and I don't know, maybe it's not. <laughs> no, maybe not. Uh, all right. Well, we, before we close, I usually offer guests an opportunity to, to um, uh, tell our listeners where they'll be appearing, what they expect to be uh, releasing by way of speeches or uh, papers. Uh, you have any uh, any events coming up that you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, I, I do expect to be on Twitter in an hour or so, if, uh, if you plot for that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're yeah, on no, Twitter, but I, uh, you're yeah. actually on Twitter more often than you're not, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I don't, um, I don't do much in the way of speeches or paper writing. I, I post when I feel like it, and that's about it. I'm, I'm not an academic, so, uh, or, or a book writer or any of that stuff. It's just, fuck it, you know. <laughs> I, I'm a hacker. All right. I do stuff. All right. I, well, I like to know things. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks so much. This has been uh, truly illuminating and uh, from a completely different uh, perspective than we usually hear uh, in Washington. Uh, uh, so thanks to the Gruck. Uh, and as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions or suggestions for interview candidates to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, uh, or uh, give us a review on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. Uh, 
This has been episode 133 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, our next interview will be with uh, Assistant Attorney General, uh, outgoing Assistant Attorney General, uh, John Carlin. Uh, we'll also be talking to Jonathan Zittrain about some of the same topics we talked about with the Gruck. We hope you'll join us for those and other interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.